This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. I uh, had a little bit of luck, a little bit of subterfuge. Uh, I find myself running a business. I had not got a clue. Welcome to the Happy Work-Life Podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more, and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction, and importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So, sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network, and get career support from experts, and much, much more. Welcome to this edition of the Happy Work Life podcast, where my guest is the quite remarkable Dame Stephanie Shirley. I was sick and tired of being ignored, having my ideas pilfered. Otherwise known as Steve, but you'll find out why a little later on. Dame Stephanie came to the UK in 1939 on kinder transport from Nazi Germany. She was something of a prodigy in maths and went to work in several companies as a mathematics clerk. But I decided to set up my own company, but in a way that was appropriate for women workforce. Feeling a great injustice towards women and the opportunities they had in the workplace, set up a company at a kitchen table with six pounds to recruit women to be coders and build software for the Internet age. That company became hugely successful, doing remarkable work like the Concord Black Box Recorder, and ultimately being sold for three billion pounds. Dame Stephanie, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'd like to, if I may, before we talk about your amazing business career and the philanthropy that followed it, I'd like to just start with your early years and and how they shaped you. Um, And we know that you arrived in the UK when you were six years old. So would you like to tell us a little about your, your early life and schooling? Well, I think people's early life acts as a sort of crucible for for them as as a human being. And being an unaccompanied child refugee at five, actually, uh, I was with my older sister who was nine. We were together. So she had the dubious pleasure of having to look after me as well as look after herself, poor thing. It really has made me what I am. Uh, It's made me able to cope with change, uh, enjoy change, um, realise that I, I'm one of the people that can make change happen, to really think positively about the rate of change that we have at the moment, which is technology-led, uh, but is impact society in, in, in such uh, an important way. My childhood also, that tra- the trauma of that, um, left me with the need to... Um, I suffered from survivor guilt, the guilt... You know, it's irrational guilt, but why did I survive when a million children died at that time? Um, But I did deal with that. And in fact, what got me out of 
it really was compassion that my philanthropy has helped me. Uh, but but the, the, the real impact of, of it meant that I, I don't fritter my life away. I feel it has been saved. I feel I've been given a second chance. So I don't fritter my life away. I'm quite a very serious person. I think the other thing that, that's ha happened to me is, is, is that I've, I've, I'm a patriot. I'm not political in any way. I don't know whether you are. Uh, well, I suppose in the Lords you have to be. Um, but um, I, I'm a patriot. I love this country with a passion that perhaps only someone who had lost their human rights can feel. And um, I, I'm some, currently less than happy with some of the uh, things that Britain has been doing the last year or so. And, and going back to those early years, Steve, you arrived in the West Midlands in 1939 from Germany, as you said, with your older sister. Um, you talk very fondly about your foster parents. Tell me about your schooling. Where, where, where did you go to school? Where were you educated? Well, we started, I was started off in the local village school, which was within walking distance of auntie and uncle, as we called them. And then I started speaking with a Birmingham accent. And my dear foster parents, bless them, were a bit snobby. And they said, we can't have a child of ours speaking with a Birmingham accent. Um, and so they took me out of the village school and sent me to a little Roman Catholic private school where I was taught to speak the Queen's English and where I was also taught a great deal about values and, and what is important in life. They were lovely, lovely lay teachers. These were nuns in black and white habits. Uh, but they taught me so much about what is good in the world. And then they were very professional and said to auntie and uncle that this child is gifted in mathematics. We can't teach her anymore. She needs to go elsewhere. So I sat for a scholarship and got a scholarship uh, to the Litchfield Grammar School and had a year there and then transferred to Oswestry, which is a border town uh, you know, of Wales and um, had the rest of my post-war schooling there. So it was a bit of a mixture, um, but I got something from each school. And I think each, even the Oswestry School was, they did something really great because again, I was stuck with mathematics. I wanted to study mathematics and they, girls were not taught science in those days. These were unisex school, schools. I really had to fight. I can remember going through some, um, some tests, whether I was really gifted enough or whatever it was. And I finished up going to the boys' school uh, for my maths lessons. So you can imagine how horrendous that was. And uh, it introduced me to the, some of the sexism that I was to meet later in the, in the workplace. So you had this real skill and ability for maths. Where did that take you next? Well, I started working at the age of 18 at the Dollis Hill Research Station um, in North London. Um, and uh, that may sound a bit quaint, but uh, uh, at that time it was a hotbed of uh, technological development. Uh, the early computers were developed there. Even the stuff that I was doing, I was worked on the first electronic telephone exchange, the first transatlantic telephone cable. So I was working in a mathematical department at a very junior level. It would be like a sort of mathematical clerk. 
but I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Well, I was a bit shocked when I joined the post office because it's a wonderful employer, but they had two pay scales, Mark, uh, one for men and one lower for women. And I began to resent that. And I felt I was doing an equal job just as well as the men, if not better. Um, and um, when people sort of tried to help me and the handsome young men offered to carry my equipment for me, I would say with, with, with some aggression, um, I believe in equal pay and will carry my own things. I mean, nowadays, of course, I'm just so happy that somebody carries something for me. I thought, oh, how kind, thank you very much. But um, so it, it was a good start. And um, I met my husband there. He introduced me to waveguides. And I still don't know what waveguides are, but that's what actually brought us together. Um, and um, I, I know some of the mathematics of them, but I don't really understand, understand them properly. Um, and the civil service had a remnant of sexism dating from the days when women on marriage had to uh, stand down from their permanent civil service positions. They could become temporary civil servants, but not a permanent civil servant. What that allowed was that I could get my pension payments out on marriage if I left. And I decided to do that. Um, I don't, didn't really approve of my husband and I working at the same place anyway, because there were so few women and people would gossip and really horrible. Um, so I left and joined a small computer company uh, designing the ICL 1301, which was a um, exciting computer jointly designed really by GEC and ICL that I was working at GEC at, at night uh, doing the software checking. Uh, and I, that was very, very important. 18 months, that was all I had there. But suddenly I found myself in a, a work environment where it was young, um, it was about 30 strong. Everybody, the, the engineers, the, the software designers, the policy makers, we all had coffee together and lunch together. So there was a lot of interchange going on. Um, it's re really quite um, ebullient and exciting. I had a chance there of really doing something different. And that was, again, this business of checking. In the post office, I had checked the premium bond computer Ernie. Um, and so that had been one of my major tasks. Um, and I had to report to Parliament for that. Um, and, and now I found myself checking a 1301 computer that somebody else had built. Had they built it correctly? And you, you devised tests that you, you would determine whether, whether with some reasonable certitude um, that the thing was working properly. It was a very exciting time. It really was lovely. But again, I came across sexism. And Mark, that was really what gave the impetus for my business. I was sick and tired of the continual microaggressions people referred to, being ignored, being, um, and this was in a good company, having my ideas pilfered. Almost overnight, I decided I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not putting up with this anymore. So I decided to set up my own company um, to, to write software. 
but in a way that was uh, family friendly, that was appropriate for women workforce, that was um, flexible to the extreme. And I tapped into a market of uh, women programmers who had several years experience, but had left the industry on marriage or when their first child was expected. And um, they were avid for interesting work to be done on a, a part-time flexible basis and working from home. Um, so minute number one of the company's annals uh, was that our employment policies should be to provide jobs for women with children. And later on, as I learned how important training was, that changed to provide careers for women with children. Uh, and later on, it was when equal opportunities legislation came in, and pro-female pro policy like that was illegal. Uh, that changed to provide careers for people with dependents. And it stayed like that. I mean, of the first 300 staff, 297 were women. And uh, it uh, gradually, the ratio dropped um, after 1975 when uh, the legislation came in and we had to welcome men in as, rec as recruits and gradually they filtered through uh, into, into uh, all, all the levels. So it was a wonderful time and I found myself uh, as an entrepreneur, uh, I find myself running a business. I had not got a clue but I enjoyed it and I found you could find out about how to run a business. I got somebody to help me. I uh, had a little bit of luck, a little bit of subterfuge. I uh, started calling myself Steve instead of Stephanie. I gather that was your husband Derek's idea. <laughs> it that was. you should sign yourself as Steve. He, he was you know, quite involved in, in the early days of the business. And he was sort of saying, uh, you, you're not getting any uh, responses to your uh, promotional letters, signing them with that double feminine as Stephanie Shirley. So why not try Steve Shirley? And I've been Steve ever since. And, and tell me, did it work when you changed your name on letters to Steve Shirley? Did it open uh, more doors for you? I began to get some responses um, and um, uh, there was a sort of frisson of excitement when I walked through the door um, but um, I had a good story to tell and business started to come in. It was very unusual to have women in business at that time. It was very unusual to be selling software because I mean, people told me, well, the men told me at least, um, that you can't sell software. It's given away free with the hardware. So I was you know, very disruptive person in the industry. And, and you built a business that um, was worth three billion and you started with six pounds for your kitchen table. That's not bad. Well, I was financed by my own labour. I worked for free for many years. Um, I didn't even draw expenses the first couple of years. Um, so th the company really was developed in a way that wouldn't occur today when people are raising money on a, a a technological idea uh, before long before they've ever got into profits. Uh, whereas I only raised money when after 25 years. So I was in it very much for the long haul and it was a, an enjoyable part of my life. Um, I look back on the early days in particular with affection because you remember the good bits 
Um, you remember the excitement when you get a major order, the sheer, you know, this is work for six people for three days or something, you know. Then it was, this is work for 60 people for three weeks. You know, and, and it got bigger and bigger until eventually we were running projects of half a billion um, over several years. I enjoyed building up the business. I really only led it. All the work was done by professional managers. What happened, Mark, was that some of the early technical people grew into management and I enjoyed seeing them grow and helping them grow uh, and growing myself. And I eventually became a competent manager. Um, but of course, as happens with entrepreneurs, we go into a business because we love software. And within a very short period of time, we're not doing software. We're doing meetings with the tax people, meetings with the lawyers, uh, selling, uh, but, but not the technical side of selling. I found dealing with the staff issues was absolutely overwhelming. I don't know, there was always staff having divorces, staff losing children, staff wanting children, couldn't have them, the staff with disabled children, which included me. Um, and it, it, it was painfully um, onerous to hold it all together. And I found that quite a surprise. Now, of course, I know that any decent quality company spends um, a whole host of activities to encourage staff happiness, happy workplaces, happy workers. They produce good work. Just a, a few more remarkable things in your career, talking about the years of, of building your business. Some of the projects, um, working on Concord. <laughs> you, I mean, you, you've led some amazing projects. Well, people thought they were, we were doing little bits of it, itsy-bitsy work, but... Um, had a team of 40 uh, working on the Concorde black box flight recorder, where we were converting analog signals to digital, then checking that all was well. And this had to be done in time before the, the plane next took off. So, you know, it was very time, crit time critical. Um, and we worked on defense work. Um, we came out of the scientific work after a bit, we found it didn't really pay. It was never really turned into anything big. I had the sort of naive feeling that if the company did a small job very well, uh, then next time they would ask us to do a larger job. Um, but in fact, they went on asking us to do small jobs. So I learned that new clients had to start off with something fairly respectable um, otherwise, we, we, we never got ourselves out of that. And our pricing started off wrong and stayed wrong year after year, almost decade after decade. It wasn't until the professional chief executive came in and took over for me that, that she got the pricing wrong, right. But I just I wasn't allowing enough. And, and what would you say from that time was your favourite project? Do you have something that you did? You look back on now and think, oh, that was, that was game changing. We got a very early project with British Rail, and that was because our company secretary was married to somebody who worked in British Rail, you know, one of those sort of introductions that was very um, fortuitous. Um, and this was scheduling freight trains. Now, to get a client like British Rail for a tin pot company that's working on, off my kitchen table uh, was quite an achievement. 
And of course, it led to a whole lot of logistics work um, and operations research uh, work became almost a specialization. And it all dates from that British Rail job, which saw me going up to, where was it, Durham or British Rail had a headquarters. I traveled first class for the first time in my life. And I thought, well, really, I'm a serious businesswoman now. Let's just talk about the remarkable things that you've done um, when you, you, you sold your business or shares in your business. So the first thing to say is that you made 70 of your staff millionaires, which is a remarkable thing to do in and of itself. I didn't do it single-handedly. I, no. I was surrounded by marvellous people. But if you hadn't started at your kitchen table with six pounds with the sense of injustice, none of those people would have become millionaires, I suspect. The second thing, which is truly remarkable, and I'd like you to, to talk about, is that you gave 25% of the company away to all the workers in the company. So what inspired you to do that? And what do you think the benefits of doing that uh, were and are? It's always light and shadow, isn't it? In the 70s recession, we changed our method of paying the staff who were all consult well, primarily consultants rather than employed um, by paying them much more slowly only when the client paid us. And that was capped at three months delay. And that was a very harsh payment. And because they were people not dependent on uh, their earnings, that was accepted uh, and most of our clients paid reasonably, reasonably fast. But it seemed to me that if the team, if the workforce, if, if the programmers, the managers, the, the salespeople, if, if they were accepting being paid so harshly because payroll had gone to purchase ledger, um, then they really deserved to also benefit from the good things of the business. And there weren't many good things in the early days, but one could see that it, it could grow. Um, and so I determined really inspired by the John Lewis partnership um, to move the company into co-ownership. We'd had a bonus systems before and, and so on. So it was in, in line with our things. It took me 11 years to do that. Um, partly because um, it was complex because the legislation uh, referred to salaried staff and most of our staff were freelance employees. Um, so the, the legislation didn't apply. So we were breaking new ground and um, spending a lot of time on um, a lot of time and money on, on legal and advisory to do it but we did do it we got 25 percent into the hands of the staff um, uh, and 62 percent workforce control by which i mean that, that if somebody was working in the company and was a shareholder their vote counted twice so it gave a, a real impetus to it and and it 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 wasn't as successful as i would have dreamt but it made a terrific difference to how people felt. And certainly as far as I was concerned, it was no longer my company. Um, I had, you know, I was a major shareholder still, but you know, it was no longer my company. Um, and I found it um, 
depressing, I suppose, that I couldn't just give it away simply. It took so much legal stuff to make sure that it was done properly. And, and then the next part of your remarkable story, having built all of, all of that um, commercial success, is how you've been such a huge success in terms of your philanthropy. Um, and um, you now have the Shirley Foundation, but you've done much more than that. Would you like to, to just talk to us a little about what it was that inspired you to um, become a philanthropist? And I know you've done work with the government, you've done so much, but tell us about that, why, why you got into it and what it means to you. Well, what does wealth mean to people? Um, some people it means power. Um, most of us it means insurance against a rainy day. Um, and when you find yourself almost by chance very wealthy, um, you really have to think, what is this going to do to my life? And I decided that um, the standard of living was not going to change very much. That's partly because we had a learning disabled child and to keep any family life together, it was no question of you know, having a yacht and going around the world. Um, but I got this idea that um, there were things that I could do outside the business that were also well worthwhile. And I concentrated on the things that I knew and care about. And there are only two really, um, autism, which is my late son's condition, uh, and information technology, my professional discipline. So that's where most of my money's gone, 75% to autism, 25% to IT. Um, on the IT side, um, I was the founding funder for the Oxford Internet Institute, which is, again, very forward-looking, and it was, it's concerned not with the technology of the internet, but the social, economic, legal, and ethical issues uh, of this network of networks. And, um, people are always amazed, my, my God, this was at a, you were investing in the internet. People was, at the time were thinking, is, is it here to stay? So again, I was in front of the market, in front of the curve, uh, which is what I think businesses need, need to aim to be. The autism work was more painful in a way um, because I was so emotionally involved in autism and in my son. And the first charity that I set up called Autism at Kingwood, Kingwood is near where we live, where I live, my husband died recently. Um, autism at Kingwood um, started off as a private home for my son Giles um, and paid staff to look after him. And then we looked after two, then we looked after three, and then we could make it into a charity. And now that charity looks after 150 people, very, very vulnerable. Um, and it also does, looks after about, um, that's, they look after 24 seven, uh, but it also looks after about another 100 uh, who are just one day a week that they, they live independently, but just need an eye kept on them. So the autism charities have been, um, have had a different feel to them. The biggest charity was I set up a school for autistic children called Prior's Court. Um, and 
Mark, I used to think that my company would be my legacy to the future, but now I don't, no longer think that. It's, it's, I think my charities are going to be the, my legacy to the future, which is nice to think that uh, I can use the, the money that, uh, the wealth that I've created in, in, a, in a very positive way. And the, the third charity, the most strategic of the lot, I am a learning person, it's called Autistica, and it funds and campaigns for medical research. And that's making quite a difference. And I can see their impact on the, on the national spend, the NHS we're working very closely with. So I'm pretty pleased with, with my autism work. I think I have made an impact. Um, and that's what we all want from work, that it's, it's enjoyable, um, it's a happy place to be, but that what we're doing is well worthwhile. Well, David, Stephanie, Steve, you have an extraordinary story from arriving from Nazi Germany as a, a refugee at the age of five to um, your skills and talents in math being turned into an amazing business. But not just that, an amazing business that supported talented women who were finding it difficult at the time to, um, to find work that they could be really engaged in. And then making that business a huge success, creating so many wealthy people off the back of it and then using your own funds to go back into the business to support people in the business through being co-owners and also your philanthropic work i mean it is an extraordinary story thank you very much and i'm sure that there are people listening to this who are thinking i wonder what advice steve would give me if i wanted to set up my own business and if you did have any advice for somebody who's sitting there now in their 20s or early 30s and thinking about something that they were going to do for themselves, what would your advice be? There's nothing terribly clever. Um, I think it's to do something that you know and care about, that you really understand, to do it big, to make sure that you're not just doing the same as somebody else, um, but a little bit better be disruptive, to think internationally, um, to think in long term. If you start with those sorts of dreams, you stand a chance of making it work. But you have to remember that most new projects fail, most new companies fail, um, and the, the joy is that they can fail and you can start another one. Failure is not a, a one-way street. It, it can take you to different places. Thank you very much for that. And, and thank you so much for your time. It'd be lovely to see you again. To listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life, head to workall.co. Work happier.